Demand for mental health services increased dramatically in Australia during the COVID-19 pandemic. And research shows that pandemic-related mental illness is not expected to peak until mid-2021. Some of the most affected were those living in regional areas during lockdowns. Yeah, so I live sort of like in the in-between. So not terribly far from Melbourne, but I live in central Victoria. During Victoria's first lockdown, Richard Mason found himself separated from his usual support networks. It was pretty grim. It wasn't like critical or anything, but it was just low energy, terrible sleeping patterns. So like, you know, staying up until all hours and sleeping through today. Um, just yeah, not, not, not turning on my computer for days at a time, even when I was meant to be, you know, doing these assignments and being productive. <laughs> you, you know, it's going to end and you know, you're going to, things are going to be all right, but I just, just a full year of, I guess, yeah, just living on Zoom or not seeing my friends, you know, all the time, not being able to go into uni and just coping with online study and, you know, trying to be self-motivated. It all just piled up. Um, so I did, I did have a yeah, pretty extensive period of uh, ill health during that. In April of last year, half of Medicare-funded mental health services were delivered remotely. And meditation and mindfulness apps like Headspace and Calm saw downloads soar. These were services Richard leaned on during times of isolation. It's led many to question the quality of online support services. Which other groups of Australians can benefit most from these services? And how will traditional in-person counselling sessions adapt and change with new digital tools? You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Yeah, so it's a huge issue. Um, you know, demand for mental health services has always been really high. Um, but, you know, with the pandemic, um, things seem to have, uh, you know, significantly increased. Bethany Wooten is a clinical psychologist and associate professor in clinical psychology at UTS. The rollout of online mental health services helped a lot of people in regional areas during Australia's lockdowns. Bethany says these models can offer anonymity and assurance to a much wider variety of groups. I know from my own research in, in my lab that cost is one of the biggest, if not biggest, barrier to accessing mental health services in Australia. Beth was involved in a survey of federally funded Australian Mindspot Clinic, which provides online and telephone psychological assessment and treatment services. The researchers reviewed the outcomes of thousands of patients who used the service in the first seven years of its operation. Those who benefited the most were those seeking privacy and anonymity and for financial reasons and convenience. There are some cultural groups who um, mental health is, is not um, considered um, something that is uh, 
you know, yeah, important or even a thing. Um, but other than that, you know, we know that men are less likely to see, seek help than, than women. Um, we know that some people are concerned about um, the impact that, that seeking treatment might have on their future career prospects, for instance. Um, and also, I mean, I work with a lot of people with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and, and we know that when people are embarrassed about their symptoms or don't understand what their symptoms mean, then they're less likely to access care. Digital health services remotely deliver mental health information, assessments and treatment via the internet, telephone or other digital channels. Beth says they can be split into low-intensity and high-intensity treatments. So the low-intensity treatment, which is um, what most of my research on, is where we develop primarily self-help treatments that are evidence-based for people um, with different mental health conditions, and people mostly work through those at their own pace. Um, they can be self-guided, so the person works through it on their own, or they can be guided, um, which means a clinician will spend some time with them um, in an asynchronous way. So that means that um, people will access the, the information and then later on their therapist might give them a call. And often that takes about 10 minutes per week. So there's a, there's a huge time commitment difference in the two approaches. And high-intensity treatments mimic traditional client-to-psychologist face-to-face models of support. The therapy is obviously not in the in the same room as the um, the client. The therapists aren't in the same room, so um, you know all of the same techniques and um, uh, interventions are delivered uh, in those high intensity um, services. So they are analogous to to face to face services. Beth's research mainly focuses on the treatment of those with anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders. So what is really encouraging is that um, the the overall percentage reduction in symptoms from these internet-delivered treatments, so in my case for the OCD treatment, is the same as what you would see in a face-to-face -face service, um, which is really, really encouraging. Um, but what we don't know is who is, is most likely to respond to that kind of treatment. Um, so... Uh, one of my current research studies is looking at um, exactly that question. So who is it that is likely to respond best to this kind of first step in a stepped care treatment approach for um, people with obsessive compulsive disorder? And who is it that needs to go straight on to face-to-face -face services? Richard says digital services have really helped his community. Uh, there have been like telehealth and a lot of online support services uh, counselling and psychology going online. It's actually um, talking to people, it's actually helped them reach out for help because it's now easier than ever. Instead of having to, you know, drive, you know, like an hour to your closest clinic and speak to someone, you know, people can now, you know, make appointments online uh, and in a time that suits them, especially if it fits around work or study. But Beth says researchers are still attempting to understand the quality of online support services. So we don't have a lot of research to demonstrate that 
telehealth is equivalent to face-to-face -face treatment. And because the same interventions are delivered, you would expect that the outcomes would be the same. Um, but there are some slight differences. So uh, for anxiety disorders, which is the area I work in, the treatments are very active. So it, it often means you're going out in the community with the client to do different exposure tasks, for instance, um, which is obviously a lot different or, or difficult to do in a telehealth kind of capacity. Um, so, so that's kind of, for me, what I'm thinking through, you know, you're asking people to do a lot more kind of self-guided um, exposure work, which um, people may or may not be willing to do or be ready to do. Um, so that that's, I guess, an important research question, especially for anxiety disorders, because it is such an active treatment, whether the outcomes are the same. The federal budget allocated $2.3 billion into mental health and suicide prevention funding. And that includes $100 million each for digital mental health services in the country. I think it's a good start, but I think the system's been chronically underfunded for many, many years. So it, it's like we always seem to be playing catch up, um, you know, just to make the services, uh, you know, adequate. A recent Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system found that demand has overtaken capacity and the system is overwhelmed and cannot keep up with the number of people seeking treatment, care and support. It also found that there is a so-called missing middle, a large group of people who have needs that are too complex for primary care alone, but not severe enough for entry into specialist mental health services. There's been a huge shift in, in how mental health services are delivered, especially for psychologists, um, you know, over the last 15 years or so. So I'll give you an example. When I finished my clinical training in 2007, pretty much all of my cohort went and got a job at New South Wales Health and um, they were working in New South Wales Health as psychologists in some capacity. Um, but with the students that I train now, most will go out and work in private practice. So there's been this shift away from, um, you know, state-funded services to services uh, in the community delivered by private therapists. The problem lies in the people with moderate to severe mental illnesses that can't really be appropriately managed in that um, in that community kind of private practice setting. Um, so what we really need is more funding for for state funded services for people that fall into that that kind of category. Beth says ongoing care is crucial for many. For people with ongoing mental health problems that, that need monitoring and may need periodic access to an inpatient facility, having a you know community-based services through um, you know state-funded services is really important to ensure that transition to care is appropriate. You know, so they go from a lower intensity to higher intensity whenever they need to. Experts have also raised concerns about the care patients get in counselling sessions and how it's not always consistent with the standards experts set in clinical practice guidelines. It's fairly clear that there is a, a science practice gap. So what that means is that what we know works scientifically is not always what's delivered to the client in practice. I think we do need to look at making sure that uh, clinicians are accountable, that um, 
that what what people are delivering is evidence based and supported by science. Um, so, so yeah, I, I guess I see um, I see both sides of of the coin. I guess you know we need more money, but we also need more accountability to ensure that the the treatments that people are getting are are scientifically backed. Beth says there needs to be an emphasis on prevention of mental ill health rather than just treatment. It's also why it's important for services like Headspace, for instance, that kind of target that 12 to 25 age group um, to really kind of um, work on early intervention and, um, you know, trying to address anything that, that might start to come up for people because that, that age bracket is where a lot of mental health problems start to emerge and um, that kind of adolescence to early adulthood. One promising development introduced in the latest budget is $117 million to establish a national database for examining service delivery, performance and outcomes of the mental health system. I feel like that might help to narrow that science practice gap that I talked about before. Um, So clinicians hopefully um, will be accountable to someone uh, and someone will be ensuring that that the treatments delivered are appropriate, Um, you know, that they, they don't go on forever and ever, you know. She says psychologists are already learning new ways to utilise digital tools in their current practice. Some services are starting to uh, implement that, that kind of approach in treatment where um, the cl- clinicians are responsible to, for referring to internet-delivered treatments, for instance, and then they're able to see how the client's doing, um, how they're progressing, um, and, and whether they're doing the tasks that they're supposed to be doing. Um, so, so some services are already starting to implement that, that kind of model. Since struggling with his own mental health, Richard now works for youth mental health organisation Batia as a lived experience speaker. He speaks at high schools and universities to talk about what mental health is and what mental health challenges look like. Coming out of this, it's one thing I'd recommend anyone is um, even if you're feeling pretty well, sort of just try and line up those uh, social and professional support networks. So social supports is your friends and your family. They're not clinical, but they're just there to help cheer you up or if you need a vent or, you know, you're having a rough day, they're the people you can go to. But I've also um, always had professional support ongoing, which is um, counsellors and psychologists. And I've had these even when I'm not in periods of mental health because I just think it's very important that, you know, you maintain mental health, you know, your mental health. Richard says he is feeling optimistic about the future. Um, I am recovering. I'm not 100% there yet, but I'm feeling a lot better now. Um, but yeah, it just took a little while to just sort of kick that recovery into gear because sometimes it's not, you know, easy. Even even when you have all the tools and the support, sometimes it can take its time. But yeah, if you just push through, uh, you get there eventually. I think there has been some positives. And it has, I think, strengthened a lot of people out here just to yeah, build that resilience as well. And I think that's um, probably, I guess, the silver lining of this is that I think we're all going to be a lot stronger mentally, hopefully, once all of this is uh, done.
Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.